1: At least that's good. The
0: UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
2: So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. Visit RosettaStone.com/starttalk. That's fifty percent off, unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/starttalk today
0: on the next episode of Star Talk, It's a Cosmic Queries edition with, of course, Chuck Nice. And we have as our guest, David Grinspoon, a friend and colleague. His expertise is on exoplanets, the search for life, and astrobiology. And we had some great questions coming up for you. Like, is carbon-based life the only kind of life that can exist? Is it the only kind of life we're searching for? Might we be missing something? And if we do find life, is there a protocol? Also, what would an Earth-like planet that sustained life be like if it had no atmosphere? And will Earth ever become Venus with a runaway greenhouse that's nearly 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit on this next episode of Star Talk. <laughs> Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins
1: right now. David, welcome back to Star Talk. Hey guys, thank you. It's it's great to be here. Great to see you both.
0: Yeah, we count you as a yeah. friend. You've been on many, many times, and uh, you're on your resume here. I've got you as senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. And that's in Arizona, is that correct?
1: That's in Arizona. I'm in uh, the Washington, D.C. area through the, the magic of uh, of the interwebs uh, where PSI, Planetary Science Institute, is sort of distributed. We have people all over the place. And I'm reminded,
0: you're author of Chasing New Horizons. I see what you did there because there is a mission to Pluto called New Horizons. And mm-hmm. it's called Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Now, Chuck, you see what he did there? He's very... Uh expectant that there'll be more missions to Pluto.
2: <laughs> right, right. Uh by the way, the um the uh subtitle of that uh New Horizons was uh screw you, Neil. Uh, that, that was uh that was the uh, I see uh, that was no,
1: implicated no, no, in the demotion of check, Pluto. Check, that's the implied subtitle. Come on. <laughs> uh, oh, 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 the actual okay. subtitle. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh
2: yeah, but let's not forget about uh, my favorite Dr. Funky Spoon book, if I recall correctly, uh, is Earth in Human Hands because it's all about how we are shaping this planet. And uh, if you want to know some great information about climate change and the uh, Anthropocene Ah, uh, you should check out that book, man, because it's ah,
0: uh, it helped me. It's really very cool. Wow, I didn't know you're now his agent. Okay, fine. <laughs> get to know that. <laughs>
1: no, Chuck, so. Chuck's, Chuck's just my 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 like prime audience. If 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 he likes it, oh, then, that's right. Then I know I did something right. So,
0: well, well, tell us about tell us about that book, because if you're if you're a planetary expert, then Earth is simply another planet, and then you get to compare it. But uh, you know this: its strengths and weaknesses Whoa, look at Neil. And susceptibilities. He does that in a book, actually. That's what I meant. So I just want you to to, 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 let's take it. Yeah. Well, so,
1: so I, I just thought it would be, I thought it would be cool to, uh, look at, um, sort of the question of, you know, the perennial question of what are humans and what makes us different, if anything, from the perspective of astrobiology and planetary science and try to look at humans as this sort of thing that's happening to the planet and how, how that fits into history and then hopefully how that view of ourselves can help us uh in a constructive way think about our future you know so it's basically Mm. it's the uh the astrobiologist view of you know if you were an alien with a long attention span watching earth then in this recent stretch of time you would have seen something really weird happen to our planet that has never happened to it before you know where the night side lights up and the atmosphere changes and every everything changes and and what does that sort of look like from a planetary perspective that was sort of the goal of uh, earth and human hands okay cool, cool. and when, when was that published that was published in uh, 2017 2017 and the date on the new horizons book that was um 2018 that was a busy little stretch for me <laughs> wow
0: okay all right i'm still Very... recovering
1: <laughs> from all that
0: <laughs> Very cool. And uh, we also have you listed here as a musician. Are you active or you just sort of play at home where no one's listening? Well,
1: actually, one of the things that's wonderful for me and I think for a lot of people about this stage where the pandemic maybe isn't over but is easing up a little bit is the return of live music. And I've been Mm -hmm. really enjoying Ah. that both as a listener and fan and also as a performer. And I have been... Playing I'm uh, I'm in a new band actually here in the DC area. We're called The Easy Way and it's kind of a funk soul uh thing okay. and it's uh, we've just started playing. We played we played 4 gigs now. And are are there any other scientists in the in the band with you? No, but uh one one of the other guys that our lead singer, he works at NASA. He's not a scientist, but he's a NASA dude okay. so. So we do NASA does represent. <laughs> So, so Chuck,
0: you got questions for us? I haven't seen them yet. I don't know if if David has.
1: Uh,
0: uh, I'm sure.
2: I, uh, I listen. I haven't. So okay. What, All right, so
0: <laughs> I don't think anybody has. This, this is uh, a
2: cosmic query. So
0: tell us what you. Yes.
2: Got. Here we go. You want to jump into this? Let's do it. Let's uh, let's pop things off with Trevor C. Mills. Trevor says, "Hey, Dr. Tyson, Dr. Grinspoon, as well as Chuck. Uh, I hope this finds you well. This is Trevor from." Augusta, Georgia, at what point in our search for extraterrestrial life do we start a, church, a search for non carbon based life? Mm, I and like what that. are some good candidates mm. aside
1: from silicone?
2: Mm. So, okay,
1: yeah, good I question. Like you know, Dave, what do you got? The thing is, I would say there's not one specific point, it's almost like more a perspective we have to keep in mind and, re- and remember that this search needs to be conducted with the the humility of the realization that we don't really know what we're looking for. We have some hunches about what's universal uh, about life. And we know that carbon chemistry in water is a basis that can work. And we have uh, good reason to believe that that could be functioning elsewhere because the conditions are uh, are available for it other places. So so it's a good thing to look for because we we know it can work and we know we sort of know how to look for it. But um we should keep in mind that we don't have any solid reason to believe that that's the only kind of life we haven't thought of any other nobody's constructed or or invented in a lab another kind of life that works as well but that just that could be because we're dumb <laughs> not because the universe doesn't know how to do no, it. we do right? it in our movies our movies we do it a hundred times over that, yeah so. it happens in movies mm. and 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 you know there is this move in nasa astrobiology um to look for what we call agnostic biosignatures which means uh, not assume, trying to assume as little as possible and looking for sort of more universal things that may not depend on carbon. you know it, but then you get into this question, what do we even mean by life? and what does life do? But you could talk about um, you know, chemical disequilibrium, life changing the chemical balance of its environment in a way that non-life probably doesn't. And if you, go that route, it doesn't have to be carbon-based. It just has to be something that's multiplying itself and, and uh, using energy. And so so we do have ideas about how to look for non-carbon-based life. And, and I think we, it's good to be reminded, so, so thank you <laughs> for the reminder that we should keep, keep that in mind as we search. But our search does tend to be focused on, quote, life as we know it, partly because that's what we know how to look for. So often people will swap try to swap silicon
0: in for carbon in the molecule and many sci-fi movies that have attempted other chemically based life have done that with silicon and can you tell me why silicon would be such a attractive next next option
1: yeah because in some ways silicon um is a lot like carbon in that you know if you look at the periodic table we all remember the periodic table from the wall of our our uh, science classroom. And it's got, you know, on the upper left, it's got hydrogen and, and below hydrogen are all the things that bond like hydrogen with like one electron. And sort of in the middle of that chart is carbon at the top. And then below it are all the things that bond like carbon. Carbon makes four bonds with other things. And that's the basis of of organic chemistry, which is the basis of life. So you look right below carbon, the next thing down, is silicon? You think okay, silicon. That's going to be kind of like carbon. Maybe you, you can make biomolecules out of that. So there's a good logic to it. But the problem is, uh, silicon bonds are not like carbon bonds. Uh, what's great about carbon is not just that it bonds to four other things, so it can make this whole, you know, um, complex yeah. Lego set of of molecules.
2: Well, well, then it does. Then it doesn't sound like it, it. It it works. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's people making a leap because it's similarities. But that's like me saying, you know, Obama has large ears. He's black. I could be president, <laughs> you know. No, no, Chuck. No, you can't. It, you cannot.
1: It is kind. Okay. It is kind of like that. It depends on what what features you're focusing no, don't, on. Don't don't
0: don't agree with Chuck on that. Don't. Well, no, don't but ed, I mean, him on. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm sorry, Neil, but Chuck has a point here. It depends you, on you what are under no characteristics obligation you're focusing to agree on. With
0: Chuck on the show.
1: And the fact that <laughs> the fact that silicon bonds to the things makes it like carbon, but the problem is the nature of those bonds. Carbon bonds are also kind of floppy and loose and can, you know, carbon can get into all these like weird configurations, which make proteins and things. Silicon bonds tend to be really stiff and you know, yeah. they don't make those uh, complex configurations the way carbon bonds do. So for those who can't see, David Greenstone was just
0: vogue in the last <laughs> few
1: moments. <laughs> shaping his
0: hands around his face. Chemical vogue uh, imitating exactly. the flexibility or rigidity yeah. of carbon, carbon and silicon bonds.
1: Yes. Silicon.
2: Silicon
1: <laughs> silicone likes right. to Silicon likes to strike a and stick to it. Yeah. All right. yeah. Okay, gotcha.
0: And and so that's less flexible when life is experimenting on the diversity of what it may need to thrive in an environment.
1: Yeah. Is that a fair statement? And I, and I don't think it makes like, carbon makes polymers, you know, the big molecules where it's not just carbon, but it's attached to lots of other things. Silicon it makes, you know, silicon oxygen chains and things like that. But I don't think it makes the kind of just diverse molecule set that makes carbon so good for life. Uh, I would add, just from
0: an astrophysical point of view, There's like five times as much carbon in the universe as there is silicon. So you don't even need to appeal to silicon because carbon is there for you and it's your friend.
2: Mm. (laughs) So to both of you, with respect to this, are there any conditions in the universe under which circumstances cause different reactions to these elements where they might behave in such a way to do something like make life Or is the periodic chart the same no matter what, no matter where?
1: The elements are going to be the same, but your question is good. Are there conditions in which the reaction types, the behavior is going to be different? And and the answer is yes, there are conditions in which it's different. And that's why we have to be careful to not be too Earth-centric. But has anybody Uh come up with a set of conditions that we're likely to find somewhere where you can show that silicon's going to do the right thing to make life? The answer is no. But that may be just, again, be a limit on our imagination.
0: And okay. as, any, as any good scientist, you got to sort of not only know your limits, but be prepared to shatter them as you, as you take every next step uh, going forward. Chuck, you got another question for Dr. Right, Funko's Spoon here, here? Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. This is
2: uh, Emily, either Talas or Talus, one or the other. Because uh, there's a double L. So, uh, hi, Chuck and Neil. Greetings from Paris, France. So, maybe not either one of those. I know, Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. And then she goes, uh, oh, look at this. Chuck, feel free to butcher my name. I can't wait to hear what you
0: call. Oh, oh people Christ. setting you up. Oh, God. That geez.
2: was good. Pre- pre-empt, okay.
1: Preemptive uh, consideration.
2: Yeah, tell me about it. All right, she goes, I was wondering what would happen if we were to discover intelligent life outside of Earth, of course, but less advanced than we are. First, how would we discover it and confirm that it is indeed less intelligent? Well, that's pretty easy. And second, once confirmed, what would the next steps be? Is there a protocol? for
1: life discovery? Mm. I, yeah, first of all, I love the question and it's not one we think about very much because there's a set of assumptions um, that are almost unspoken because of how long we've been assuming them and how frequently we assume them, which... Actually, David, they'll remain unspoken until we come back from this yes.
2: break. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, they will remain
1: unspoken God, a little Adam. longer.
0: <laughs> oh, just a little longer. <laughs> just a little longer. Let's find out about the unspoken protocol. That's the next uh, installment of uh, Mission Impossible. David's unspoken protocol about encountering life. Uh, We'll be right back after this first break.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. pxg.com slash star talk code star talk
1: hey i'm roy hill percival and i support star talk on patreon bringing the universe down to earth this is star talk with neil degrasse tyson
0: we're back star talk cosmic queries with david grinspoon a friend and colleague and he's an expert on the solar system and astrobiology and all kinds of cool things such as that. Uh, David, how do we find you on social media?
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm still on Twitter, uh, at least today. And okay. that's, that's um, at Dr. Funky Spoon. Um, Doctor, that's why we call you that, Dr. Funky Spoon. Yeah, yeah. and I'm on, okay. I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook, just under my name, and... and uh, I'm on Mastodon now too, uh which is I'm Dr. Funk Spoon at koto.org, q o t o. Funky or Funk Spoon? Funky, F U N K Y. Funky, funky, funky. Oh, funky, funky yeah. spoon. Okay. So All right, I'm Mastodon. I'm hedging right. my bets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Chuck, we left off with a question about what would happen from
2: from Emily
0: Tal- Tali Well, well Talies. she's from France, was so M- Emily how do you Emily? Emily that's right, Amelie. how do you, how do you Frenchify, Francophile yes. you, uh, Emily? But yeah. so, so she wants to know what happens when we find life that's less intelligent than us. Right, that's hardly ever addressed in sci-fi right. storytelling. Yeah,
2: or, or because no yeah. one could imagine that we could be well, smarter Well, it's hardly ever addressed <laughs> than in, anything else in the yeah, universe. Yeah, it's hardly
1: ever addressed in sci-fi, but it's also hardly ever uh, addressed in um, in SETI itself, because there's always this assumption that. Anybody we find is going to almost surely be more, quote, advanced than us or have been around as a technological species or civilization much longer. And there's a good logic for that because, you know, on this, for one thing, on a cosmic timescale, we're just babies, right? You know, four and a half billion years of Earth, four billion years of life, depending on where you... You start it, you know, a couple million years of being human and a, a few hundred years of being technological and less than a hundred years or a hundred years of being radio friendly, you know, so so we're babies. And so we always imagine that we are the neophytes and they're the wise ones and that there's an asymmetry in contact in that direction. And, you know, statistically, I think it's a pretty good argument, but it's an interesting question. What if we meet somebody who's, uh, you know, it, it, there's a pretty narrow range there where they could be dumber than us and still considered you know, <laughs> still considered intelligent. But what if we right. what if we did? And and yeah, and how would we find them? Because presumably, then they wouldn't have traveled here, so right. we would right. have to stumble upon them or,
2: or responded or responded. Right. So even even if they're not traveling here.
1: But what yeah. if we got, you know, what so, so what if we got lucky and sort of stumbled on a civilization that was sort of just becoming technological but hadn't become interstellar yet? Um it seems unlikely. No, that would just be a tech level. That's not an intelligence level. No, that's level. a good point too. Right. Because, right. because you right. could argue there's, you know, there's always the whales, right? <laughs> and the dolphins. They're really oh. intelligent. They arguably have a civilization and a culture. I
0: saw that Star Trek movie, the Save
1: yes. Whales yeah. Star Trek yes. movie. Yeah. Yes. So we could certainly find intelligent life that is not uh, technological at a level we are. Um, and, you know, as far as protocols, it's, there's, it's pretty vague. You know, there are protocols for SETI, if we think we found something, a radio signal, what do you do? SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, just the general yeah.
0: term for that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so the, the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence community has protocols that if somebody thinks they found a signal, then you don't announce it immediately to the public. First, you verify it and you get another observatory to also find it. So you make sure it's not some weird mistake that your observatory is making and some local interference. But then once you're sure, um, then the the protocol is complete transparency. You alert everybody, you know. So uh, you're... you're Unless the men in black get to you first. Yeah, that's right. Right. With with a flashy thing. Yeah, that... (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, so um you know, and then if if somebody comes you know and lands a spaceship on earth uh and contacts us we there's no real official protocol for that because it's not something that's just been uh you know you can argue whether it should be or shouldn't be, but it hasn't really been taken seriously enough by the the sort of SETI and scientific community to develop a protocol for that all I know is that. In today's world,
0: if the aliens land and they say, take us to your leader, nobody's taking them to the White House.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, That's that would so really it Take would, get a beer. It would present a conundrum. Where do you take them? <laughs> yeah, you take yeah. them, get a beer at the corner pub. That's all you need to do.
2: <laughs> I imagine that my, my fantasy is that they would land and then we find out that we're so insignificant that they're actually filming a reality show. Oh, oh, with them among us. Yes, uh, okay. exactly. <laughs> like, that is, the, that's what we rate as. Like, hey, let's go down there and like, like basically they're the Aston Kutcher of the universe and we're the ones that are being pranked. Pra- we're basically
0: props. <laughs> we're props. <laughs> we're, we're straight up props. Thank you, Chuck, for the, the happy thought there. Okay. <laughs> <I know. laughs> All, right, All right, here next. we go. Oh, by the way, I, I want to add something here. So, David, I just want to add that if we count chimps as sort of the next smartest species to us just just for the sake of this for this example we can't have a meaningful conversation with them think about it and there, we got 99% identical dna so if if we find another species that's sort of not as smart as us what evidence do we have that we'd be able to communicate with them or worse yet finding a species just that 1% smarter than us than we are to chimps what hope do we have of them even being able to communicate with us because our simplest thoughts would transcend our most Yeah,
1: your, your example of chimps really uh, is an interesting one. And it kind of illustrates that something very recent has happened uh, here on Earth with humans that, uh, for better or worse, where we have the, these qualities of of language and culture and, and and so forth. And, you know, not just, I mean, chimps, you can argue, have a kind of language, but the sort of syntactical language and ability to express abstract thoughts and all that. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty new. And it underscores how unlikely it probably is that we would connect with somebody else out there who seemed like an intelligent uh, civilization, uh, but also was less um, capable than us. Because, you know, it, it really illustrates that maybe we've just passed some kind of a threshold and on the other direction, yeah, so what if somebody is to us as we are to chimps? That may be possible, but it may also be that this sort of threshold is something that once you're over it, then maybe you sort of can communicate even if you recognize that these guys are geniuses compared to us. So it's an interesting question. Chuck, that's his hum- that, that's <laughs> David's human
0: ego that just got into that sentence. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we hit that threshold and we could communicate with any intelligent species smarter than us.
1: Right. I said yeah, maybe. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Or maybe not. Maybe we're <laughs> okay. maybe we're dumb as rocks uh, compared uh, to just about everybody in the universe. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I like that one. That's thank mine. You. That's Glad the one I like. You.
2: All right, Chuck, keep we them coming. See. All right. This is Sandra Pagani. Sandra Pagani says, Good morning or evening, wonderful Star Talk hosts and listeners. This one came to me as I was flying to Seattle and looking out the window. Love it. Love looking out the window. Yeah. Why are black holes generally situated in the center of galaxies? Why that specific area? And yes, this is the kind of stuff that I think about while I'm on planes looking out the window.
0: Yeah. That's good. Because a whole lot of other stuff you can think about that create anxiety and things. And if you can yeah. think about black holes on a plane and not feel anxious, that's,
1: that's good. Uh, so, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, so, David, I was going to say, say that uh, off, right? we, we actually have an astrophysicist here and it's not me.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So a black hole, our understanding of black holes tells us that uh, you can get it from the death of a very high-mass star. The sun is not among them. And high-mass stars are very rare. So these would be stars that are dotted around the galaxy from a black hole that is the remnant of a supermassive star that lived out its life and died. And in the final collapse, it collapsed all the way to a black hole. We expect those black holes to be pretty much Rare but everywhere, if if you can if you can picture that, so, so in other words, wherever you had stars being born, you'd have like maybe one of these. All right, so there are fewer of them than all the total stars, by far. But there's no part of the galaxy that would be without them. So that's for stars. So that's a one kind. Con- those are called uh, stellar black holes. Then, just empirically, we discovered that the centers of galaxies have black holes in them we just it was a discovery in my life while i was in graduate school this discovery took root and we say well we've got one in our galaxy and one in a nearby galaxy and in an, well, there's another galaxy over here we we can get data and we show a black hole and so we extrapolated we said if it's in these three galaxies it must be in all galaxies <laughs> it's hard enough to get those data <laughs> and those galaxies were very different from each other so then we just went on the assumption that every big galaxy would have a supermassive black hole. And sure enough, Hubble Telescope gets launched, and every galaxy we look into and have the quality of data to know, they've all got a supermassive black hole, and we do not yet know how they were formed. And the James Webb Space Telescope is exquisitely tuned to see the birth of galaxies. And from those data, we might be able to see material collecting in the middle to form the supermassive black holes that dot the center of every galaxy. And to get a sense of it, a black hole, um, stellar black hole might be five, ten times the mass of the sun. But the supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies is hundreds of thousands up to millions of times the mass of the sun. So,
2: w- if, it's, if, if it's consistent that it's the death of a star that makes that, do we see stars that have that mass in the universe that might be able to create the supermassive black hole that coalesces a galaxy?
0: No. Do we see? No. Okay. Yeah, stars give out at about 60 to 100 times the mass of the sun. We don't find stars more heavier than that. So we're not going to find okay. a billion times mass of the sun star. We just right. have never seen that. And so that's okay. what we think something else is making them. That's all. That's has something else. There. That's something that. Else. that that is, wow, that is a wonderful mystery. Yeah, yeah. Goodness. Well, the universe brims with mysteries. That's why David and I have a job.
1: And I <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, lo- I love the fact that for the supermassive black hole, it, in our own galaxy, we can actually watch the stars orbiting it. So,
0: And in a Nobel Prize winning observations, uh, yes, we can, you, you're watching these stars do these loops and loops, and there's nothing there in the middle. Nothing.
1: Right. It's, an, it's nothing enough to make done. you really believe. and you run the math
0: on the orbits and the speeds and the the distances and you get a black hole
1: you get a black hole straight up so
0: cool
2: it's not it's
0: it's not a nascar track
2: no it's a black hole that's very cool Mm -hmm. all right here we go um this is his name is on another page gavin mallow and gavin says greetings from beaver creek Hello, David, Neil, and Chuck. And that's Beaver Creek, Ohio. I forgot the Ohio part. Okay. I'm curious about the possibility of life on an Earth-like planet that would lack the protective sleeve that Earth's atmosphere and magnetic fields supply us. What would life do to accommodate these relative extreme conditions? Ooh. Could anything on Earth potentially be transmissible to an environment as such? Ooh, I Ha-ha. like that. I like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, David, we got these We got these protective you know we uh, our atmosphere protects us from meteors it protects us from uv light it's you know so we're here uh, by the grace of the atmosphere and so if there's a planet out there earth size earth gravity goldilocks zone maybe and doesn't have these protectorates uh, i mean these protect these protecting forces what what do we do
1: yeah that's that's a great question i'm i'm less worried about the magnetic field part which is the other thing that the questioner asked, because we're learning more that makes us wonder how important magnetic fields are in protecting the surface of a planet. Uh, we, we used to say that, without, that it was the lack of a magnetic field that made Mars lose its atmosphere, for instance. But more recent observations have made us question that. And the role of a magnetic field in protecting the atmosphere itself is not so clear. And then there's the example of, of one of my favorite planets, Venus, which has no intrinsic magnetic field, but because it has a thick atmosphere, it's still protected. In fact, Venus develops what's called an induced magnetic field, where just the the solar wind itself sort of makes the upper atmosphere charged in such a way that it starts acting like it has a magnetic field. So, and David,
0: if memory serves, you wrote a book on Venus too.
1: This is correct. Yes. Wait, wait. You sorry. You wrote a book on Earth about Venus. That's right. I was not on <laughs> Venus when I wrote the book, but I wrote a book <laughs> on the subject of Venus. So and the title of that book was what? That's that's Venus Revealed. Revealed. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. So you've
0: been at this for a while. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. So so magnetic fields. I think life could life would find a way, but um, but an atmosphere fills so many roles. Not only does it protect from dangerous radiation, ultraviolet light and cosmic rays. But of course, it also um, serves to transport, um, you know, think of Earth and the the role of oxygen and carbon dioxide and plants and animal life, the transporting of um, chemicals that are involved in, in the metabolism of organisms, of, you know, trading energy between molecules and so forth. It's hard to imagine life evolving on the surface of a planet without an atmosphere. Now, of course, there are places in the solar system without atmospheres where we think there might be life on the inside, like, say, Europa. And so one could imagine an Earth-like planet w- without an atmosphere that still had the chemical stuff happening and the, and, the, and the energy transformations on the inside so that maybe you'd have internal life um, it, 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 in, the, in the interior of the planet. But, mm-hmm. but but an atmosphere is so integral to the kind of life that we have on Earth that it really sort of stretches the imagination to to think of how you would get a biosphere without an atmosphere. And, and, and
0: there's nothing wrong with stretching the imagination. This I mean, is true. So. Well, that's why let we like written. these kinds of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck, we got to take a quick break. And okay. David will be back in just a moment for our third and final segment with David Funky Spoon, Grinspoon, on
1: Talk.
0: We're back. Star Talk, Cosmic Queries, all about the solar system and searching for life and astrobiology with one of the world's leading experts on these very subjects, David Grinspoon, a friend and colleague at the Planetary Science Institute, itself based in Arizona, but he is distributed. Uh, he's part of the uh, uh, PSI at large community based in Washington, D.C. Always good to have you, David. You're a friend of our show. And thanks for responding.
1: Always to great calls. to be here with you guys.
0: So let's make this kind of like a lightning round, all right? And we'll speed it up as we go along. Because we only got through like five questions, and we got more, tons of them. Let's keep going. All right, here we go. Eric Sharakan, or Sharakan,
2: says, "Uh, Hey, from Boston. What does Dr. David Grinspoon think about the James Webb Space Telescope's recent exoplanet discovery, particularly that it appears similar to Earth in size and in composition.
0: Yeah, David, you know, when we designed the damn telescope, it was to look for galaxies at the edge of the universe, and then you planet people are starting to use it to, like, look at stuff right in front of our noses. So who went, what, in the dark of what night did that... <laughs> yeah Dude, that portfolio who do you know, start, do you know <laughs> that you were able
1: how, to pull how, this when off did
2: that happen?
1: yeah all right well first of all boston my hometown yay go celtics and um the uh it's it's wonderful what what i think of that is uh, you know like uh, as neil implies <laughs> the 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 web was not designed to uh look at exoplanets. it was designed for uh galaxies and, and other things like that astrophysical targets but um, you know, I chalk it up to the fact that the universe is just so incredibly productive when it comes to planets, much more than we thought, even when people started designing the web. And so it, in a way, it's luck. You know, there it turns out the uh, web is sort of marginal for exoplanets, but there's so many good targets that we're starting to find them. And they, the exciting prospect now is that we can start to see what their atmospheres are made of. Even though, again, web is not the ideal instrument for that, and we've got other ones, of course, we want to build in the future that will be more ideal, we're we're going to learn some really cool and important things about our, our planets in uh, in nearby star systems. And that's just... So uh, you're being
0: opportunistic,
1: and that, that's Absolutely. Good. That's a good thing. Absolutely, good thing. yes. All right, Chuck,
0: keep it coming. That was All good. right, let's nice just keep going. Succinct answer, David, Well, for can, this we'll third it, round. We'll, okay, go.
2: Keeping it a moving, Kyle Marston says, Hey, yo, hey, yo, hey. I didn't say that he did okay. <laughs> uh, how, how many earth like planets do we know about
1: currently that reside in habitable orbits? Ooh. Is there a number uh you know there's there's a lot of marginal ones uh I would say um I would say a handful you know um which is which is pretty good because when you come, when it comes to saying habitable orbits, some of them were sort of guessing because it really depends on whether they have an atmosphere or not and what the details of their climates. But there's a you know there's a good uh, dozen or so that um, seem like pretty good candidates. Wait, David,
0: there're five thousand planets in the catalog right now. Are you tell me there's only like a
1: dozen. Well, I'm saying I'm saying sp- Goldilocks planets. I'm saying ones that we and it depends on what you mean by Earth-like. Okay, these are these are all gray area terms. But okay, I'm saying okay. I'm saying roughly Earth-sized and definitely uh, good candidates to be in the habitable zone and maybe have. Liquid oceans and things like that. It's a small but growing number. Okay, all right.
0: So that would be if we did it in percentages. It what's ten out of five thousand? So what is that? It's one out of five hundred. So that's still pretty low. That's like a, a fifth of one percent.
1: Yeah, but right? you know, but a lot of those five thousand are ones that that will. Could be. These are, I, I, I'm I given a conservative number for ones that we can say, yes, that's earth-sized. And yes, it, that is it. really- So there's some in the, the, in the running, in the running. Absolutely. Okay. But good. it's still big good news. One. It's still big news when we find one. Yeah, that's why it's so exciting that, you know, it's this one that was just mentioned because like, oh yeah, that's earth-sized and it seems to be in the habitable zone. That's, it's still news.
0: Yes, yes. Which is a good thing. It means that oh, yeah. people are still excited and yeah. there aren't enough of them to get bored with it yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Chuck, keep it coming.
2: All righty, here we go. This is Zeki Mazed.
0: I I think. I mean, you, you you're, the, maybe, you're the reader here, so it's yeah, always so what you Zeki, think.
2: <laughs> Zeki Mazed. Okay, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the truth. I really don't think that, but that's about as close as I can come. Okay. Uh, he says, Hey, Neil, hey, David, and Seth McFarlane's The Orville 25th Century Life has progressed far into the galaxy, solved societal health and technological issues, and eliminated money as a form of currency. Do you think this future is viable? And what steps do present-day humans need to take individually as well as on a larger scale to walk towards that goal? How can we push for science literacy
0: Globally, mm-hmm. wow. Okay, so David, answer that in three sentences.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. I, I would say in three sentences, yes, I think it's possible, though not assured, um, and that the path is not going to be smooth <laughs> between here and there, and that the the key is um, some sort of a globally enlightened um, society where we. Uh, guide ourselves uh, with the recognition that we are one planetary species uh despite all of our wonderful differences just as a guiding uh, force operating on our future decisions
0: right well there you go here's your answer <laughs> you're <were> screwed, well, <laughs> <it's> screwed. <laughs> okay and i think just to just to remind people i think the original star trek after which so much of the orville is uh, so much of it in, is inspired forces operating within the storytelling of Orville. Uh, if I remember correctly, the reason why there's no money is because they they someone developed a replicator where you, if you need another one of something, you just make another one in it. So you didn't have to go out and buy it or earn money to obtain it. It's post, so,
1: post-scarcity. <laughs>
0: yeah, correct. A post-scarcity world
1: where right. anything yeah. could
0: just come out of a box, a, a machine right. that you, yeah. you create. And so that changes what people care yeah. about, what they value. And all the rest. But one of them is you don't need money. It's interesting.
1: Because so, mon- money is just a belief system anyways. We all fool ourselves into thinking it has value. So it does have value. So we can always right. change our minds collectively about that.
2: Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and the other thing too is once they got rid of money, they people started to do what they wanted to do. which So you naturally end up with a passion for life because everybody's doing what they want to do. Rather than what they have to do in order to pay rent. the rent. Exactly. Okay, but
1: then how do you explain Ferengis?
2: (laughs) Well, well, yeah, they're greedy little bastards. That's how you explain them. They're just greedy little bastards. They they don't care. They have it all and they still want more. But but Chuck,
0: what you said is deep because what it would do, it would liberate the creativity of every citizen of the world to contribute in whatever way best floats their boat. And they'll probably be better at that than anything else they would have done, right? Because they'll do it because they want to, right? Because yeah, yeah, exactly. They have to.
1: Deep. Oh. I like These it. I like sure. it. I think. I think we should just like. Start that world right now. What are we waiting for? No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and on January 17th, 2023, a revolution took hold and spread like wildfire across the face of the globe. <laughs> All right. So this is Cameron Bellamy who says, greetings from Baltimore, Maryland. What aspects of a planet's climate are planetary scientists looking for when evaluating planets for potential to support life? Additionally, how close do these planets need to be to Earth to look for these aspects in the planet's climate? I like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's it's a good question. So, I mean, the basic factor that we're always very focused on is a climate in the range where water would be predominantly liquid and again that could just be our own bias cuz uh, you know as we talked about it earlier maybe we're not smart enough to think of other kinds of life that don't need water but earth so much of what makes earth the way it is is because the climate balance is such that we live on a water planet and that is in every cell of your body is liquid water interacting with organic molecules so so that's the number one thing there's enough greenhouse gases um carbon In a good dioxide way. yeah exactly In a good way. The, the the a good amount of greenhouse gases carbon dioxide water a little methane sulfur dioxide these are the gases that absorb infrared radiation and make a planet warm but not so much that you have a venus that's just too hot for liquid water so that that's the the sort of prime directive if you will for for habitability um and what was the second part of the question um what do we look for um to um oh how far away how far away how far away Yeah. yeah um again you know with the tools we have now we can there's it's it's very difficult to um tell what's in a planet's atmosphere unless it's not just distance the geometry has to be right if we have what we call a transiting planet so it passes in its orbit right between us and its star and you can look at the radiation coming from that star as it passes through the atmosphere and see how it's filtered out and what molecules are there. But it's easier to do that if you're, you know, within a few hundred light years than if you're thousands of light years. But, Holy crap. but if we, as we get better instruments um, that we want to build in the future, we'll be able to greatly expand the number of planets we can do that for. Uh, just a
0: quick addition here. I remember watching Star Trek and just, you ever noticed, David, Chuck, they never wore spacesuits when they went down to planet surfaces. Right. Have you ever thought about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, they never wore because they, uh, some, at some point, Spock would say, uh, it's an uh, oxygen, nitrogen atmosphere, Captain, right. so right. Captain. And so then they go down. It's a class planet, Captain. But right. I would hear that, and it was as though all we have to do is find an oxygen, nitrogen planet to move to. And then I realized, and David, correct me if I'm wrong here. If it has oxygen, something's making the oxygen so so you are already looking for planets that had some kind of life forms on it to create that atmosphere in the first place. It's not that there's all kinds of random atmospheres that exist on all the planets and pick the ones that you happen to be able to breathe there's There's active stuff going on there yeah the reason
1: why the reason why we have a breathable atmosphere is because there's life here <laughs> right and so oh, any wow, planet you find. With that kind of atmosphere, would be very surprising. Uh, like, like you say, Neil. What, what, what else would be making an atmosphere with just that mixture? It's hard to imagine that it's not brimming right. with life. Right. Right.
0: So, cool. okay. a Couple more, Chuck. Man, we're blowing through these. Very nice. All right. Yes, okay. we are. Yes, we are. Here we are. Uh, now this now, now friend- we're, 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 we 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 got to speed up even more. So, David, soundbite mode. Okay. Remember, they, uh, so ABC News just put a microphone in front of your lips and they're going to soundbite you for the evening news. So here it is. Go, Chuck. (laughs) All right. Uh,
2: Hello, Chuck. Hello, Neil. Hello,
0: Dr. Funky Spoon.
2: Um, Okay, here we go. (laughs) Does weed still work in space, Uh, or are the THC crystals too fragile for space? What temperature, uh, what hemp crop would be best to grow on Mars?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll say I don't know that the experiment's ever been tried, but in all seriousness, one thing I wonder about is— You told
0: me NASA never took weed into the space station?
1: Not that I I know of, but I I will say in all seriousness, one of the big problems with astronaut health is eye pressure, ocular pressure. And one of the things that is well-established that cannabis does— Medically, yep. it's good for glaucoma it because it reduces right. ocular pressure. So I've always thought, and I've kind of whispered this to a few people at NASA, but like, oh. why don't you try that? <laughs> right
0: on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. You don't. You don't have to. You don't have to smoke it. We have gummies.
1: Exactly. And tell me
0: about the soils of Mars. Can you grow anything there?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you could grow uh, anything, I mean, the thing, uh, you know, cannabis is just another plant. So if you can grow tomatoes. You're going to be able to grow cannabis there. It's uh, okay. So the whatever soil, the soil by itself, as of now, probably isn't very uh, isn't very fertile, you know, because it doesn't it doesn't have organic. We learned from the
0: from the book and movie The Martian, yeah, but to, it could he certainly had add poop.
1: You could certainly mix in a, mix in a little uh, either human generated or otherwise generated fertilizer and grow stuff on Mars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> human generated <laughs> fertilizer,
2: fertilizer, right on. Yeah, I always knew yeah, you were full not- of—
0: Fertilizer. Exactly. We call that (laughs) HGS. Nice. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) One last one, Chuck. That's all we got time for. Here we go. This is uh, Akshat Pat... Oh, man. Why does it take you as long to read the name as the question itself? Because I don't prepare. Okay. Um...
2: (laughs) Uh, Patikar. That's it. Ashkat Patikar, who says this. Hey, hello and greetings from India. I was wondering whether Venus was once a habitable planet and their civilization was there uh, living on the planet, but unfortunately they destroyed themselves due to extreme climate change. Yes. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: yes <laughs> what does the climate history have to say about the evolution of the entire planet thanks and i
0: love the show oh and this uh, is from, when, this from india just yeah, to give shout it shout from out. india, yeah, so india has yeah. been growing their presence in space with satellites and space missions and things yeah and they have and a venus
1: mission that's announced an indian venus mission that's going to that be... May be where that came from very good mm-hmm. okay so
0: welcome to the company of spacefaring nations
1: I say, to the nation of India. Yes, indeed. A short answer, I've often wondered that myself, but it's true that we think that Venus probably was habitable, although that's one of the motivations for our upcoming missions is to determine, was it really? We think it had oceans and lost them, but we want to gather the evidence to be sure of that. Um, We generally don't talk about an ancient civilization on Venus, although one has to admit that we have not explored the planet well enough to rule that out. Okay,
0: okay. Wait, wait. You said you don't talk about it. That implies you don't talk about it in public. Or no, something. no, no. I didn't. You heard how he said that, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, we, don't, we don't talk. about I did. That.
2: We don't talk about. No, it. We, we I don't,
0: just we made don't talk about that. That's not yeah. amongst
1: like our. Bru-
2: like Bruno in that movie, in the Disney movie, we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs>
1: we do like, talk, you know. <laughs> you know. talk about. I meant that's not amongst our most favored hypotheses, but it's certainly oh, not that thing we could ah. rule out. <laughs> Thanks for letting me clarify that. Well,
0: yes, thank you very, very much, there. But clearly, Venus does have a runaway greenhouse effect and they're just worried maybe it, the the uh, venus has knobs that got turned right uh, had it become what it is and we should look at those yeah. very same knobs here on earth
1: yeah no i mean a, sure a serious answer thing. is that by studying what happened to venus we can be better prepared to understand changes in earth's future and that indeed is one right. of the big motivations for understanding what happened to the climate there
0: you got it
2: now is that is 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 runaway greenhouse effect Something that can happen under the conditions that we have, like our planet could undergo the same thing could that happen it's a good, I'm just saying like not not that we're make that
1: that it is going to happen, but is it possible here the, uh, people have people have looked at this, and the answer is if you burned all the fossil fuels on Earth, of course you would make things awful and uninhabitable for humans, but you probably would not trigger a Venus style runaway greenhouse effect where all the oceans boiled off but I gotcha. but in the future. As the sun warms up, which it is slowly, in, you know, a billion years or so, um, then there probably will be a runaway greenhouse effect on Earth like there was on Venus in the past. So, if we wait long enough, then the sun will help us do that.
0: So, you hear that, Chuck, when an astrophysicist says, in the future, mm-hmm. his next phrase was, a billion years from A now. billion years. <laughs> Always, that's, yes. There's some <laughs> serious ass future that we're talking
1: about. Yeah, here. Exactly. We, yeah, we have um, more I, immediate problems, but nonetheless, oh. it's still in, interesting to picture that. Let me add future. something and get David's blessing on this
0: comment before we uh, close it out. So, uh, David, in all my readings on this, I, I agree that if you extracted all fossil fuels and burned them all with none left, Earth would be hotter, but you would not have the runaway greenhouse effect experienced by Venus. What you would need to do is um, somehow dissolve all of the world's limestone and other repositories of carbon that's beyond just fossil fuels or fossils, right? And, and if you put all of that carbon added to the carbon that the fossil fuel burning would have, then we could become a twin of Venus in that way. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Because then, I mean, Venus has sort of uh, like 100, 100 bars almost of CO2, which is 100 times the atmospheric thickness of Earth. If you burned all the fossil fuels, you're not going to get that much carbon in Earth's atmosphere. But yeah, if you dissolve all the limestone and sort of took all the carbon in Earth's crust, and somehow put it in the atmosphere, I don't think anybody should should try this, mind you. Yeah. But don't try this at home. Then then I think you probably could turn Earth into Venus. Yeah, okay. All right, so mm-hmm. we're, not,
0: we're not doing that for sure. But anyhow.
2: But the one thing we know for certain is that greenhouse effect is from carbon in the atmosphere. That is just well, the dioxide. way it is. Car- carbon carbon dioxide. dioxide. Yes. So carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, done deal. Greenhouse effect. And we know that we are doing that through burning fossil fuels here right now. Absolutely. absolutely, We're we're We're
1: going in that direction and it's the wrong direction for us. Okay. There you go. For our survival. Yes. All right. We got
0: to call it quits there on that down note there i was gonna say <laughs> we, i had a chuck i had a good no, a note a high note good night a couple of minutes ago and then you had to just take it down
1: all right uh, i wait uh, a, a few right. minutes ago we were abolishing all money and like liberating yes. human creativity
2: <laughs> we <laughs> saved humanity in the last question
1: oh, and then of
0: course we destroyed it with this all one. right that's that's, that's
1: yeah. that those
0: are the breaks this is star talk cosmic Queries, one of our favorite Variants on the Star Talk franchise. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. I want to thank David for coming back to Star Talk. He's a friend of the show. And of course, Chuck Nice. Always good to have you there. Always a pleasure. As always, I bid you to keep looking up.